Very beautiful choir. Thank you very much for that. With the sound of trumpets, Jesus is coming. And just as this feast has gone by so quickly, the time between now and then will go by very quickly. He's coming very soon. Appreciate that very much. Also appreciate the offertory music and uh, really appreciated the offertory message. Thank you, Brother David. And uh, just give me a moment here while I just delete a whole section on Islam from my message today. Since David covered it, I have been warning about Islam now for over three years. At first, I seem like a madman. I've been severely reprimanded for doing so, and I will not stop. The past is prologue. I have committed to my God that I'm not seeking popularity. I'm seeking truth. Praise God. There's a, there's a passage in the book of Acts that I love, and it's where the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian church that I have not neglected to show you the whole counsel of God. And what that says to me was, much of what he had to say wasn't smooth, but he gave it to them anyway. And he said, now I'm free from the blood of all men. And so what I want to do today on this last great day is share with you the whole counsel of God. That means we need to cover the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But we don't have all that much time. So I decided what I'll do instead is just cover the first three chapters of Genesis and the last three chapters of Revelation. And that will give us the whole counsel of God. We'll listen to Moses, and then we'll listen to John. And in the middle, I just want to spend a little bit of time listening to the Apostle Paul on the subject of marriage, and you'll see how it all ties together. Really what I want to do today, brethren, is just reinforce my message that we have to get our focus off ourselves and onto others. That here on this last great day, God wants us to have a whole of mankind vision. We are the first fruits recruited to rescue mankind from the slavery that Brother David spoke about. So I'm hoping that as we look at the whole counsel of God, the whole plan of God, that we will have an other orientation in our view of salvation. That it's not about our salvation, it's about humanity's salvation, of which we are playing a part, a very essential role. As we look at these chapters, opening in Genesis and closing in Revelation, we've read them many times. What I'd ask you to do today with me is look at them afresh and suspend judgment. And maybe some of what we hear we haven't heard before. That doesn't mean it's wrong. We have to see, does this agree with the whole counsel of God? Does this glorify God or does it diminish him? Does this contradict the whole word of God or does it agree with the word of God? And so my job is to preach the word of God. Your job is to search the scriptures to see if the things I say are so. Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. So you're under no obligation to believe anything I say. But you're under every obligation to believe what God says. 
So we have to be active and proactive and critical in our listening. In Acts 17, Luke writes in verse 10, that the brethren sent Paul away with Silas by night to Berea because they were being persecuted in Thessalonica. And when they came there, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So he's been taught in the synagogue of the Jews. And Luke writes, these Jews were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They weren't just passive. Yeah, whatever you say, I'll just accept it. You know, you say, I'll agree. No, they listened and they listened and they were ready. They had ready minds. They were hungry for this. And then when they received it, they searched the scriptures and they spoke often with one another to see if these things were so. And so that's our obligation. And that's what we'll do now as we read the word of God beginning in Genesis 1 and verse 1. Genesis 1, Deacon Jan was here and said how it answers so many questions in one verse. Moses writes, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And from this verse, we see that God has a master plan. It was a big project. And then everything went wrong. And we spend the entire Bible from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22 sorting out this mess. Until the mess is sorted and we can get back to God's intention for creating the heavens and the earth. So we begin here that God has this integrated plan for the heavens and the earth. But it was interrupted. And now he's getting it back on track. Dropping down to verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image. This is a big, big project. And it has to do with the earth and the heavens. And making this man in his own image. And uh, Brother Rick was here. He mentioned that image and likeness. Make man in our own image and our own and our likeness, and let them have dominion. So he is to be a ruler over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth. He was a king of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then this is what Rick highlighted to us, brother Pastor Rick. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. He, he drops the likeness. So the likeness is a process. So the image is there, but the likeness has to be developed. Thank you for pointing that out, Brother Rick. The other thing that we see here is that in creating him in the image, the image is complete or only complete when the male and female come together. So it is the male and female together that reflect the image of God. And we must now develop his likeness. In verse 31, when all of this is done, God saw everything that he had made, And behold, it was very good. How how good was it? It was very good. He was very pleased with what he saw. It was very good. And then Moses writes that the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And that's significant. Moses wants us to understand that a day is a 24-hour period. Also contained in the day is prophecy. That 
man's existence would begin with a plunging into darkness. And that darkness would be removed by light. And that's what we will see as we go through the whole counsel of God. In chapter 2, and verse 4, Moses writes, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. So here we have the earth in existence. The, 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 the plant life has not yet come, and the man has not yet been created. And, and rain has not yet fallen upon the earth. Instead, in verse 6, there went up a mist from the earth, and it watered the whole face of the ground. And so now with this mist mixing with the earth, God can take the clay as a potter. And the Lord God, using this clay, this water and, and earth, formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. God personally landscaped this garden. And I think when we read the word garden, we often think of, you know, a nice flower garden. And I think that misrepresents this. Far better for us to think of a national park. Think of a big national state park. And this is what God personally landscaped. And then... It says here, after he, he, so he creates the man, he landscapes the garden, then he takes the man and he put him in the garden. There he put the man whom he had formed. So this specific parcel of land was designed in a very specific way before God put the man in it. And we know from Ezekiel that Satan, or Lucifer, was in Eden. And it seems that God is now recreating the pattern of what was with Lucifer. In verse 9, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So every single tree that was in this park was beautiful to look at. It was, it was breathtaking. And every single tree that was in this park had fruit that was edible. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, that's interesting. God personally landscapes this park in such a way that the focal point has these two trees. I don't know if any of you are golfers. I know Brother Gord is a golfer. Some, uh, Brother Rick we, uh, and I golfed this, uh, earlier this week. And these... Uh, grounds, these courses are beautiful, breathtakingly so. And they are landscaped in such a way that your focal point eventually goes to the green, where the flag is. So it's like walking a golf course, and it's just beautiful. It's breathtakingly beautiful. Everything is beautiful, and your eye is drawn to the green. And when you get there, there's two flags. God is forcing a decision. God takes the man forms him in his own image and likeness, 
personally designs this garden and then places the man in the garden where the whole, doesn't matter where you go in the garden, eventually you come to the centerpiece of the garden. And there's two trees. And the man has to make a choice. God is forcing the choice. He's forcing the issue. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So he now had to maintain it. He had to look after all of this beautiful creation. And the Lord God commanded the man personally, face to face, saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. God is demonstrating his great love for his creation. I have created all of this. It's mine. It's all mine. But I'm giving it all to you. Eat freely. Have, have anything that your heart desires in this garden. We love God because he loved us first. And any of us who are parents know that that newborn child that's just so beautiful, all it does is take and take and take and take and then take some more. And you just keep caring. And, and at some point, it looks at you and it smiles. And that's everything. That's all you want. And then the love starts coming back. And then there's this, this beautiful relationship. But somebody has to initiate the love. And so God creates this man, and he initiates the love relationship. He gives the man all of his love. And what he wants is for the man to make the decision to return this love. So he commands him, however, there is one tree that you mustn't touch. So the Lord God commanded the man, verse 16, of every tree of the garden. And remember, every tree is beautiful. Every tree is edible. You may freely eat. Eat freely. You don't have to pay for it. There's no negotiation. It's all yours. However, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. You have to tend it. You're the, you're the garden tender. You look after You're the caretaker. Look after everything. But do not eat the fruit from this tree. For in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. So here is this image of God, meant to live with God for all eternity. And God is telling him face to face, look, I've given you everything here. It's all yours. However, in the middle of this garden, there's just one tree. I don't want you to eat the fruit from that tree. The day you do that, your life will cease to exist. You will die. Verse 18 as if this is not enough love to bestow upon the man, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So when he received this instruction from God, he was alone. I will make him a help appropriate or suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. So this is a big project. He's in a big park. And God is personally fashioning all of these different creatures. And the responsibility, which is a God-level responsibility. God is going to assign all of us a new name. This is a God-level responsibility. Based on our character. Based on our personality. 
based on our history, based on our accomplishments, he's going to look at each one of us and assign us a new name. Well, Adam had this God-level responsibility. He had to look at each thing that God created and, and try to understand the essence. What is it that God has created here? And then when he has figured out the essence, identify it, give it a label, assign it a name. The other thing that's important here is that these creatures that were brought to Adam, they came from the ground. In verse 20, Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. Now, these creatures are created to reproduce, so they're coming to Adam in pairs. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. So he could see the cooperation between the different animals, but he realized he's alone. So God, again, was driving this issue. God, God could have created the wife for Adam first, and then all the creatures, and then said, go ahead and name them, and then it would be no big deal. Every, everybody has a partner. He has a partner. They all have partners. But God is, is identifying for Adam the issue, that you're alone. It's not good for you to be alone. So he creates the creatures first, has Adam name them all first, identify that they're all paired, and then come to the realization that he has no help or no helper. So you can imagine the loneliness that's starting to kick in. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. So this is different. All these creatures are from the ground. But this one is from inside Adam. So there's some surgery that's taking place here. And Every animal is coming to Adam, and he's figuring out the, the essence of that animal. And now this new creature, verse 22, and the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And remember Moses wrote earlier, male and female, he created them. So the male and female together are the image of God. So he brought her unto the man. So he brought all the creatures to the man, and now he brings this woman to the man. And Adam said, so he's in, this, he's in this process of naming all the creatures, figuring out what their core essence is. And so he said, this is now bone of my bones. He got it. This, this, this creature in front of me, this beautiful creature, came out of me. This is totally different from all the other creatures that I've been naming. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. So this is different. All of these creatures all around me, this one is Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. And all the others had their names that were appropriate for them. So he got it. Then he says, he goes further, because he understands all these animals are reproducing. But this one is different. He's on a God-level assignment, assigning identities to all these creatures. And then he has this creature presented to him that actually comes out of him and is a part of him and together with him reflects the image of God. So he makes this pronouncement. Because she is Isha and taken from man and forms the image of God with man, therefore 
all the animals are reproducing. He knows human beings are going to reproduce. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. So what, what's happening here on this human level is totally different than what's happening out there with all these creatures. This is God level. This is the image of God. Therefore, while there's all kinds of sexual activity all around me, and I'm naming these creatures and they're engaged in all this sexual activity, now this creature in front of me came out of me. And we reflect the image of God. Therefore, there shall be no sexual activity without marriage. This is divine. This is the image of God. This is the image of righteousness. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be pronounced man and wife. And they too shall become one. And they too shall reflect the divine image of God. In verse 25, Moses writes, They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Of course not. This was not so much a sexual union as it was a reunion. It was Adam joining with himself and becoming one. In in fact, when they were apart, that was unnatural because she came out of him. So when they came together, this was the most natural thing in the world. And there was no shame. I think, you know, Moses doesn't write it here. But I think we can read between the lines that they were both naked and they were not ashamed and they loved being together. And they came together often. And it was just euphoria on top of euphoria. These feelings that Adam didn't even know existed inside him were just overwhelmingly beautiful. And this is the love that God had for his creature, for his creation. He wanted to bless them with every good thing. Unfortunately, they were not alone. They were being watched. They were being examined. They were being analyzed by one of the most powerful minds in all creation, the mastermind of the devil. He's studying this thing. Well, look at this. This is going to replace me as king of the earth? This clay? Well, yeah, it looks like God, but it's clay. But look how happy they are. Look how in love he is with his wife. This is not going to be. I'm going to put a stop to this. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, so before we go to what he said to the woman, there are all these creatures in the garden with Adam and his wife. But there's this one creation that's totally different than the others. Moses says he's the serpent. In Revelation 12, verse 9, John says, The great dragon was cast out, 
that old serpent, that ancient serpent. So John refers all the way back to what Moses wrote to say that this is that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. So amidst Adam and his wife and all the other creatures, Satan himself was in the garden. So what do we have? We have this beautiful garden. It's landscaped in such a way that the focal point are these two trees. All the trees are beautiful. All the trees are edible. But these two trees stand out. And one of them, Adam, although he must care for it, he mustn't eat from the fruit. Adam's in the garden. His wife is in the garden. The creatures are in the garden. God is in the garden. And Satan is in the garden. He said to the woman, so this is a different creature, Yes, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he's a mastermind, and he takes the strategy of creating doubt. Just the thin edge of the wedge. And the woman said to the serpent, Well, yes, we we can eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it. And then she adds, because God didn't say this, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we know that she wasn't even created when God gave these instructions. So God gave the instructions to Adam face to face. Adam then taught his wife. I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say that Adam added this. Basically, Eve, don't even touch it. Meaning, I'll, I'll look after this. You don't, you don't even touch it. Putting a hedge around the law. Lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. A complete contradiction to the word of God. So what do we have? We have God saying, the day you eat from this tree, you will die. And we have Satan saying, the day you eat from this tree, you absolutely will not die. Somebody's lying. Somebody's not telling the truth. And based on my kind of analysis of the scriptures, I'm going to hazard a guess that Satan is lying. And that the word of God is true. In fact, Jesus says that when Satan speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, his own being, for he is a liar and the father of it. So if only Adam could have analyzed Satan the way he was analyzing the creatures to say, well, what would you call this one? He would analyze it and say, liar. We'll call you liar. Because that's your being, that's your essence, that, that's, who, that's what you are. Everything that comes out of you is a lie. Therefore, as we read the passage here that Moses has written, let's conclude without any shadow of doubt that Satan is the liar. And that in fact God is true. That the day they eat of this tree, they will die. That, or Adam will die. Then Satan now backs up his lie. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Well, hmm, this sounds like the truth. 
Because if you drop down to verse 22, God himself says, Moses writes, the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. So he ate of the tree, and it's exactly what Satan said. You'll become like God to know good and evil. But Jesus said that Satan can't help himself. Everything that comes out of him is a lie. So then this also must be a lie. And the lie is in the implication. The implication is, this is a good thing. This is a good thing for you to do, to become like God, to know good and evil. So this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what exactly is it? What do we mean the knowledge of good? God created everything and said, it is very good. Then Adam explored the creation and saw how beautiful it was. Every good creature was brought to Adam and he named him. So can we say that Adam did not have the knowledge of good? He, he needed the knowledge of good? He already had the knowledge of good. So then what is this knowledge of good and evil? I'm going to describe it this way. It's the knowledge of how to use good to do evil. It's the tree of deception. Satan is a deceiver. That is his work. To make things appear one way when the reality is another. So when Adam takes of this tree, he becomes like his father, the devil. He becomes a deceiver. And we know when the new creation comes, no liar can be in the new creation. But we have to choose between the tree of life and the tree of deception. Will we hypocritically try to appear one way when the reality is something else? Because that's the devil's work. Brother David said, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. So this is sort of like the footnote. Yeah, you can choose for yourself. You can decide what's good and evil. You can be like God. But what I'm not telling you is the day you do that, you become my slave. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden we, we, we may not eat. Verse 5. Oh, sorry, I, I read that already, that you'll be like gods. Verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, well, all the trees were good for food, that's nothing new, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, all the trees were pleasant to the eyes, that's nothing new. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. Satan planted desire in her. And this is what we have to be careful of, brethren. And Brother Louis Anani mentioned this yesterday. Flee youthful lusts. This is how the devil works. He will work in a way to open your mind so that he can insert desire so that you can become his slave. Desire is the the noose that he puts around our necks. And then he drags us around wherever he wants. So she is now hooked. This could make me wise. This again is why I keep warning about self-orientation. If the, the scripture says we have escaped the corruption 
that is in the world through lust. So, so Satan corrupts mankind through lust. Then he comes to God's people and says, I've got an offer for you. You can be this. You can be this. You can, you can have this. And, you, and we say we're not interested. Why? Because our mission is rescuing humanity. We're not in this for ourselves. So any offer you bring to me that is of self-interest to me, I'm not interested. Tell me how your offer honors God. Tell me how your offer honors Israel so that the God of Israel can be honored. And now you've got my attention. But telling me how I can be honored, telling me how I can have more pleasure, more lust, not interested. Now, when she saw that this tree is to be desired for wisdom, she went and she took the fruit, and she ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So remember, Satan was studying this couple, and he saw the intense love between them, and the intense euphoria between them. And Adam is king, coming to replace him. His target is Adam. He could not care less about the woman. Capturing the woman doesn't do anything. Adam is still king. Notice when she takes of the fruit, Satan does nothing. She was not the target. It's not until she gives it to her husband, that's when he acts. That was the takedown. The target was Adam. I must, he's a mastermind, and he wants to take down Adam. So she eats of the fruit, nothing happens. She gives to her husband with her, and he eats. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And what happened when their eyes were opened? They knew that they were naked. So Moses doesn't go into any detail. But I don't think, you know, let's kind of just put our thinking caps on here. Once they were captured by the devil... They knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they covered their private parts with aprons. So whatever just happened had a genital focus. It was pornea. Satan captured them and had them worship him. And all false worship involves pornea. Because the coupling of a man and his wife reflects the image of God. So anything that destroys this reflects the image of Satan. Satan, don't, let's not kid ourselves. Satan works through sexuality. And that's what happened here. They went into deep satanic worship as he became their sex educator and taught them every perversion that he could think of. And suddenly they realized what this is, that they are naked. Before they were naked and they weren't ashamed. But something happened here. Verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Here is their father. Here is their loving creator. Here is the, the God that gave them everything. And they're hiding from him. Having shared an intimacy with Satan who has given them nothing. Nothing. Just wants to take from them. But they give their loyalty to the devil and they run from God. 
Christ himself said, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Adam's deeds were evil and he had to run from the light. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself before they weren't ashamed. Now he's afraid because he's naked. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I personally face to face commanded you that you should not eat? And now God is going to hand down three sentences. And it's very important, brethren, that we understand these are three separate sentences to three separate beings. I think sometimes we can just sort of mix this all up and think it's the sentence against mankind. Let's read it as as Moses wrote it. Sentence number one, verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, so God is talking to the devil, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so we get the, you know, and so this is why snakes slither in the grass. Moses didn't say that. You know, snakes could already be slithering in the, in the grass. This has got nothing to do with snakes. This is the serpent in his natural form. Wings, he was a cherub. He had probably had beautiful wings, legs, arms. He, he was manipulating Adam and Eve. He must have had uh, members that he could work with to pervert them. And now in his natural state, he loses these limbs. Because you have done this, he did something. And God said, because you have done this, you're going to lose your, 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 your members. And you're going to slither. Upon your belly you shall go, and, you shall, and, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then, he, and then God says, look, whatever just happened between you and the woman, that's never happening again. I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman. I have to ensure that 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 doesn't get repeated. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So this is a prophecy now that the woman is going to have a seed and it shall bruise your head or it shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the prophecy now of the Messiah, that the Messiah will come. There's going to be conflict between the children of the devil and the Messiah. The Messiah will be bruised, but the Messiah will crush the devil. That's sentence number one. Now, in this courtroom, the next person comes forward, the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow, you shall bring forth children. So God wants to have children, Now his children must be brought forth in sorrow. So God now reflects this here, that in sorrow you shall bring forth children. And your desire will be to your husband. Whatever just happened, I'm going to put hostility between you and Satan. And your desire will be to your husband where it should be. And he shall rule over you. That's the proper order now. He's he's going to have this... uh, authority over you. You should not be listening to someone outside of your marriage 
and then coming to your husband, telling him what to do. Stay in your marriage and listen to your husband. Sentence number two is now done. Now sentence number three. Unto Adam he said, this is only to Adam, not to anybody else. Because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, I personally commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. In the day you eat of it, you shall die. And now God is saying, you're going to eat from the ground in sorrow all the days of your life. But Satan said, in the day you eat of it, you won't die. So God is true. Satan is a liar. What's going on here? Hold your place here. And let's go to 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul refers back to what happened in Genesis. And he writes in 1 Timothy 2, verse 13, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. We just saw this. Adam was created from the dust of the ground. He was created first. He was given an assignment. He was moving around Eden. He spoke to God face to face. And then Eve was formed. And Paul writes to Timothy, Adam was not deceived. What's that? Let me read it again. Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. I think sometimes we can read this and say, you know, men are not deceived. But it's easy to deceive women. But Paul's not saying that. Paul is saying, look, the woman fell into transgression because she was deceived. But Adam chose transgression. Adam chose it, fully aware of what he was doing. And Satan knew that that's what he would do. Or he calculated that that's what he would do. I'm going to get to the man. When I see the love that the man has for his wife, I know how I can bring him down. I'll go through the wife. And and, and Satan made Adam an idolater. Eve became his God. So Adam was not deceived. Now he writes this. Notwithstanding, the fact that she she was in the transgression, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. He doesn't say Adam will be saved. He says she was in the transgression through deception. But through childbearing, she shall be saved. He's saying what Moses said. The sentence that came to her was that your seed shall crush the head of Satan. And your seed will be the savior to mankind. So through childbearing, Eve will give birth to her savior. She shall be saved if they... Continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So we have to go back to Genesis to find out who they are. Let's go back to Genesis.
Genesis 3 and verse 18, well, we'll go to verse 19. He says, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. That was never the intention for Adam. Adam was created to live forever. And in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God was not lying. God wasn't joking. What comes out of God's mouth is true and can never and, and will not be reversed. You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. So this is Adam's fate. He was told specifically by God, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he chose, he was not deceived, he ate of it. And now he's going back, he shall surely die, he shall go back to the dust of the ground. The verse 20, notice this. So Adam changed his wife's name. Her name was Isha. When Adam receives his death sentence, he says, Adam changed his wife's name. Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Adam realizes she was deceived. He was a rebel. He was an idolater. He's going to die. But all life from this point forward is in Eve. So they shall be saved if they, that is the seed inside Eve, if we all, the children of Eve, continue in righteousness and accept the Savior that comes out of her, humanity has hope. Humanity can be saved. Verse 24. So within this 24-hour period of Adam eating from this tree in rebellion, God appears and pronounces the death sentence. So he drove out the man. He, he, this is a very a forceful act. This is a exile. He drove out the man and he, placed that he, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way. There is no way on earth that this rebel will ever get access to the tree of life again. To keep the way of the tree of life. And then Moses goes on to show that uh, Eve then believes that Cain is the seed. Turns out he's not. She calls him gotten a man. She thinks this is the one. She calls Abel breath. She doesn't really think much of him. Uh, turns out Abel was the righteous seed. Cain kills Abel. And then she has another child. And she calls him replacement. Meaning this is the replacement. The seed will come through Seth. And then the whole Bible from this point forward is all about genealogy. As, as the Jews, the, the Israelites are now tracking this promise that was given to Eve. But before we go to Revelation now, so that's the first three chapters of Genesis. We want to go to the last three chapters of uh, Revelation. But just before we do that, we want to understand this notion of marriage a bit more. If I could have the slide, next slide, or first slide. This image that God created, where he took the woman out of the man, and male and female, he created them in the image of God. In Ephesians 5, 25, husbands are told to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then 
he says, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So this church represents repentant mankind, that the Savior, the second Adam, is coming to save. Verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. So he's referring back to Genesis. That Adam said, Isha, she's come from the man. So when we love our wives, we are one flesh. We're loving ourselves. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. This is how we treat our wives, even as the Lord, the church. Then he says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause, again he quotes Moses, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And then he says this. This is a great mystery. It's a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So, we have the man, we have the woman. The man loves the woman. I can go back. The man loves the woman, cherishes her. And so we know that the man is Christ and the woman is the church. But Paul didn't say, this is a symbol. He didn't say this is symbolic. He didn't say this is a mystery. The Greek says, he writes, This mystery is mega. This is mega. This is huge. This is a mega, mega mystery. So if we read it, and we say, oh yeah, Christ is the the, the man, and the, the woman is the church, yeah, yeah, that's okay, and we move on. We're not taking Paul seriously. Paul said, this mystery is mega. But I can't get into it now, so just make sure that you, you, you love your wife, and wives, make sure you honor your husbands. But this mystery is mega. So we need to pause here and say, what's so mega? What's so mega? Why is this a mega mystery? Okay, let's try to unpack this a little bit. He says this is a mega mystery, but it concerns Christ and the church. So we know that the woman will be saved through childbearing. So the woman, Eve, is the mother of all living. Mankind, as they repent, they become the church, which is really Israel. And Israel will be married to the second Adam. So the first Adam failed. The second Adam will rescue the woman. The church is the woman. But it's a mega mystery. And... In verse 30, he says, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. If I could have the next slide. Of course we know, whenever we read the Bible, it's all about me. Right? It's always about me. So we always have to put ourselves center stage, any scripture. Well, what if it's not all about us? What if this is big? What if we're not center stage? So if we go back to the next slide. 
go back to this now, to say, we know the woman is the church. But that's not a mega mystery. In verse 30, he says, we, first fruits, are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. What if we as the first fruits are members of Christ and we've been recruited to be his arms and legs to help save the woman, to bring more of mankind into the woman, to save Israel, to bring all mankind into Israel. So until this process is complete, we are actually representatives of the second Adam. This is a mega mystery. We are first fruit recruits to help him in saving the woman. Colossians 1. In Colossians 1, verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. So Paul is suffering for the church. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So, so is the church the woman or is the church the man? It's a mega mystery. But he's telling us the church is his body. Whereof I am made a minister according to this dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid from the ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So we understand what's going on. Even the mystery which has been hidden from ages, verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? This is deep stuff. These people who are not a people of God are going to be brought into Israel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So as first fruits, Christ in us is the hope of glory. And we are members of his body, and we are helping him in the recruitment process of rescuing mankind. And bringing mankind into the church. This is why we must have the highest honor for marriage. Paul writes in Hebrews that the marriage, marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. We need to reflect on this, brethren. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Any sexual activity outside of the marital union is porneia. The original sexual union between Adam and his wife reflected God's glory. The original sexual activity that Adam got, that Adam got involved with with the devil is porneia. And if we, the saints of God, participate in any sexual activity outside of marriage, it's porneia. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2. 
Porneia honors the devil. Porneia is the image and likeness of the devil. 2 Timothy 2, I think Brother Louis said he just remembers 2-2-2-2 and puts a Timothy in there for his favorite scripture. So 2 Timothy 2-22, flee also youthful lusts. Flee, he said. Move with urgency. And then he asked the question, you know, why the word youthful? I would uh, translate the Greek, flee from neophyte lusts. Flee from novice lusts. But follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So what the apostle is saying here is, when you're, when you're experienced in the faith, and you come to understand this battle that we're engaged in, that it's a spiritual battle, that there are forces that seek to enslave us. There are forces that seek to drag us into idolatry. And they work through desire. They open the mind through desire and then they take control. The experienced follower of Christ understands that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That there are spiritual forces we're wrestling against. The neophyte in Christ, he could be 80 years old, but he's new in Christ. He doesn't understand this. And so he can be as perverse as anybody. This is the neophyte. Flee this kind of thing. Because they don't understand. And so, brethren, we must have purity in the body of God. You know, we, uh, Burlington and Ottawa, we hug a lot. We hug the women. And we say, greetings, sister. We don't hug them and say, hey, sexy lady. (laughs) This is perversion. This is neophyte. The the human mind at any age can be perverse. Just because you see gray hair or no hair, doesn't mean I cannot have the perversion of a juvenile. You see, the mind gets trained on a certain track. And once it's on that track, it just gains more and more momentum on that track. And so once you start delving into these things like pornography and adultery and fornication, you can't get out. You become enslaved. You know, I was at the gym yesterday, and the routine was... Uh, 21 squats, so 21 squats, followed by 21 toes to bar, then 15 squats, 15 toes to bar, 9 squats, 9 toes to bar, and then you have to work your way back up. 15 squats, 15 toes to bar, 21 squats, I mean, this gets your heart racing. You might wonder, Adrian, why do you do all that working out? Well, I have a very beautiful wife. I have to stay young. not nice when you go to the hotel and you check in and they say, uh, and would you like another room for your daughter? (laughs) So that's my wife. (laughs) So, you know, I did the routine, 12 minutes and 17 seconds. And then I'm, I'm breathing, it gets your heart rate up. Drinking water, the last guy finally finishes. 17 minutes and 24 seconds. And as he's finishing, so you have to sort of strategize. I'm going to do seven, and then I'll do another seven. And you have to figure out how you're going to do this. Well, he's down now to the last 
uh, 21 toes to bar, and he's down to one at a time. He's just gassed. And they're encouraging him, come on, come on, you can do it, Tim, do it, one more, you go one more, okay, again, do it. And then finally when he does the last one, everybody cheers. 17 minutes, 24 seconds. I did mine in 12 minutes, 17 seconds, nobody cheered. <laughs> What's going on? Well, this guy was an athlete. He was doing the prescribed workout. The rest of us, we can compensate. We can do lighter weight. I wasn't doing toes to bar. I was doing knee, leg raises. That's enough for me. I'm 55. These guys are like 20, 25. But as Brother Louis pointed out yesterday, he was competing according to the rules. This is an athlete. He's going on to greater competition. He's going to win awards. Nobody cares about me. I'm not competing according to the rules. And if we here are in this race, but we're involved in pornea, knock yourself out. Make all the pretense that you want. Hey, sexy lady, flirt with the married women. Because when it's time to cross the finish line, nobody's cheering for you. We're going to cheer for the athletes that competed according to the rules. And ladies, if we make you uncomfortable, call it. Brother, you're making me uncomfortable. Make it visible, and it will stop. And ladies, we're going to ask you, when you see sisters dressing with plunging necklines and tight clothes, please have a word with them. Tell them that's not good for your brother. Christ tells, it's okay to look at a woman and say, wow, this sister is beautiful. What a beautiful woman God has created. Nothing wrong with that. It's the leering. Hey, sexy lady. This is adultery. This is pornea. This is the worship of the devil. Revelation 2. Remember, brethren, there are powers that we cannot see that want to overtake us, that want to enslave us. And young people, when I was a young person, I didn't understand the Bible, but I read Proverbs. I read Proverbs. And Proverbs saved me. There were decisions I could have made, but the Proverbs told me, don't make that decision. So I didn't understand what I understand today, but I was able to avoid youthful lusts because of the Proverbs. In, in Revelation 2 and verse 20, notice this. Notwithstanding, verse 20, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit pornea. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is pornea. And it worships the devil. To seduce my servants to commit pornea and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Verse 21. I gave her space to repent of her pornea, but she did not repent. I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. So we can appear righteous, 
But if we're engaged in porneia, we cannot be a part of the new creation. We need to be undefiled. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches will know that I am he that searches the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. There's no playing with God. Adam tried to play with God. Oh, the woman that you gave me. And he started to try to deceive like his father, the devil. There's no playing with God. He will give us according to our works. If we look at the next slide. I love this. I love it. Lady Justice, blindfolded. This is a Christian concept. This is saying, tell me the situation. Okay, I'm king. Here's my verdict. That man should be sentenced to death. Now, I take off the blindfolds, and Nathan says to me, David, you are that man. No one is above the law. No one is above the law. When it comes to the judgment, Moses could not enter the promised land. You know, in Islam, the worst, the worst sin is shirk, to associate partners with God. Muhammad led his followers in the, with the pagans together. They were united, the pagans and the Muslims. And Muhammad led the prayer, and they bowed down to Allah, Al-Uzza, Manat, and the, third, the three daughters of, of, of Allah, the moon god. And they all worshipped together. And then afterwards, Muhammad repented and said, Satan told me to do that. I shouldn't have done that. And then Allah said, oh, Muhammad, because I love you so much, it's okay. With God, no one is above the law. Eli, well, let's look at Eli. First Samuel. First Samuel 2 and verse 22. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel. So he knew about this. And how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So there was porneia in the camp. And he said unto them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. So it came to Eli's attention. Know my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. The same way Jezebel did. And God condemned that congregation because they allowed it to take place. They were not blindfolded. They didn't say it doesn't matter that she's a leader. She has to be judged. Oh, she's a leader. She's a prophetess. She will let her go. It's not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. You're bringing porneia into God's people. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? When we interfere with the marital union, which reflects Jesus Christ and his church, we are sinning against the Lord. And who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they did not listen to the voice of their father, Because the Lord would slay them. So the father took no action. 
He allowed it. The same way the, I think it was the Ephesians, allowed Jezebel to function. In 1 Timothy 5, it talks to us about talking to our younger sisters as younger women as sisters with all purity. Okay. I want to go now to Revelation, the last couple of chapters here. And as I do this, I was, uh, my last sermon when I spoke on atonement, a couple of brethren came up to me afterwards to ask me if I had heard about Christ returning on Pentecost and marrying the church on Pentecost. But in the church, 31 years, I've never heard this. doesn't mean it's not true. I just never heard it. So he's going to return on Pentecost, marry the church, and then on trumpets, he's going to put down his enemies. So I've looked into it. And I don't see it. Doesn't mean it's wrong. I don't see it. When I got married 26 years ago, before I got married, I was dating. And I, this, I was going to do this right. I come from a dysfunctional family. It was very important to me that I marry the right person. So while I was dating, I actually developed a spreadsheet. And I put in that spreadsheet all the attributes that I was looking for in a wife. And then as I went out on dates, I put the women's names across the top, and I scored them. You're laughing. It worked. (laughs) It worked. So I'd go on these dates, and I would score them, and I would see, you know, does this woman have what I'm looking for? And then I met my wife, and I threw the spreadsheet away. This is the woman I was looking for. When we're very clear on what we're looking for, we don't settle. So young people, if you're not clear first person comes along, you're going to fall for them. Once, once that chemical reaction kicks in, once the hormones kick in, you're going to fall for them. I didn't want that to happen to me. So sure, I met women. I was attracted to them. But then I'd come back with my clear head and say, no, she doesn't have that attribute. No, she doesn't have that attribute. When I met my wife, I'd say, this is the woman. So the day we got married, I'm standing there waiting for her to come. And then she appeared, dressed in white, symbol of virginity and here she comes for me for me he that receives a wife receives a good thing and obtains favor of the lord and she came down the aisle and she came to me and she took my arm and we said our oaths and that was 26 years ago and to this day when i look at my wife my heart leaps but there was only one day that she was dressed in white and came to me She didn't do that over and over. So the question I have is, how many times does Jesus Christ get married? If I could have the next slide. The the scripture says he marries the church, the first fruits. In Isaiah, it says he marries Jerusalem. In Isaiah, it also says he marries the Israelites. In Revelation, it says he marries the new Jerusalem. And it also says he marries the rest of mankind that gets grafted into Israel. So how many times does this woman appear in white for the wedding? Uh, Either she does this over and over and over, or Christ marries over and over and he's a polygamist, or somehow we have to reconcile all of this with one wedding. And that's what I want to show you now. In Revelation 1 and verse 1,
It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must surely come to pass, shortly come to pass. And we mustn't miss this, brethren. This is right the very first verse. We mustn't miss it. He sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. In other words, what was going to happen, God shared this with Christ. Christ sent it to John through his angel, but he sent it signified. Signified means everything is symbolized. So the future is presented to John in symbols. Right, at, right out of the gate, John is telling us, you need to default, as you read this, this revelation, this apocalypsis, you need to default by thinking in terms of symbols. Most of the time, it, you know, we read the Bible, it's literal. Sometimes it's symbolic. When we read the book of Revelation, it's mostly symbolic. Sometimes it's literal. That's the first thing. Look at Revelation 6. Revelation 6 and verse 9. When he opens the fifth seal, this is a symbol. It's not saying that there's an actual seal here. It's a symbol. I saw under the altar a symbol. The souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. This is a symbol. If it's not a symbol, it means that when people die, they go to heaven and they cry out to God in heaven. We know this is not true. But this is symbolic. This is a symbol. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? So we have to understand this symbolically. It's not that these people are in heaven worshiping God. Now we come to Revelation 15. And I know um, one of the teachers of this doctrine, that the church marries Christ on Pentecost, actually has translated the Bible. And I've read his translation, and it's an excellent translation. But I think he's wrong here. Here in Revelation 15 and verse 2, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So apparently this is when this marriage takes place. But look at verse 1. John says, And I saw another symbol. The, the, the revelation, the apocalypsis, the revealing, is signified. It's given to John in symbols. So this, in other words, don't take this literally. This is a symbol. I saw another symbol in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the last seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And then he goes on, he saw this sea of glass. So if I can look at the next slide. So where is our focus? Because we are first fruits, and because we are human, we want the most important event to be Pentecost. We want Christ to return on Pentecost. We want Christ to marry us on Pentecost, and we want everything good to happen on Pentecost. And whatever happens after that, I hope it works out for everybody else. 
what if God's focus is the finish line? That this work is not done until we cross the last great day. And all those to be saved are saved. And that Pentecost is an out-of-season calling to say we have the opportunity to participate in the salvation of mankind. Starting with Israel. We must bring Israel at one with God. Put down the enemies. Bring Israel at one with God. Then participate in the ingathering to Israel. Then the last resurrection, or the, the second resurrection, where the rest of mankind has an opportunity to come into Israel. And this whole process is not done until the last great day. And then the wedding takes place. What if that's the case? I'm not saying it is the case. Your job is to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. So in Revelation 15, we have this seal, or the seven plagues, and this sea of glass. Then we have chapters 16, 17, 18, and 19, with the destruction of this satanic world. And then we come to chapter 19. And when we come to chapter 19, the woman is still not married to Christ. In Revelation 19, it says, verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Well, wait a minute. According to some teachers, he already got married in chapter 15. Here we are in chapter 19, and the announcement goes out that the marriage has come. And his wife has made herself ready. Now, we could say, well, see, it's right there. She's called his wife. That means the wedding has already taken place. But we cannot take the scriptures out of their Jewish context. And I say to our young people about, you know, dating, and they push back on me and say, well, you you can't find that in the Bible. But we can't take the scriptures out of their Jewish context. Here in the Jewish encyclopedia, it speaks of the term betrothal. Betrothal. The term betrothal in Jewish law must not be understood in its modern sense. That is, the agreement of a man and a woman to marry, by which the parties are not, however, definitely bound, but which may be broken or dissolved without formal divorce. So when I was engaged to my wife, I wasn't betrothed to her. So I could just say, I changed my mind. Or she could just say, I changed my mind. That is not a Jewish custom. You don't touch a woman sexually until you're married. But once you're betrothed, you're as good as married. But you still don't touch her sexually until you are formally married. But now you're betrothed. And everybody knows you are legally bound to marry each other. If I were to change my mind in the betrothal period, I would have to divorce my wife, even though we haven't consummated the marriage. This is the Jewish custom. So from betrothal, Joseph could call Mary, or did call Mary, his wife, even though they had not yet consummated the marriage. He says, So this modern sense of engagement where you can just break off, you cannot do this. This is serious. This is the image of God. 
Betrothal or engagement such as this, what we have now, we can just break it off, is not known either to the Bible or to the Talmud, and only crept in among the medieval and modern Jews uh, through the influence of the nations that they were spread out to. He says here, when the agreement had been entered into, it was definite and binding upon both groom and bride who were considered as man and wife in all legal and religious aspects except that of actual cohabitation. So betrothal is a formal agreement to marry which cannot be broken except to go to the courts and be divorced. So when it says his wife has made herself ready, it doesn't mean that they are married yet, that the wedding ceremony has taken place. It means that in the betrothal, Christ can refer to her as his wife. Now we come to verse 19, uh, verse 9, sorry, of 19. And he says to me, right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. It hasn't happened yet. And he says to me, these are the true sayings of God. Now we come to Revelation 20. We see uh, Satan is bound. And the covering that's cast over all peoples is, is lifted, as Isaiah prophesied. We see the rest of the dead do not live until the thousand years were finished. So in verse 2, we see he's bound for a thousand years. That's on atonement. In verse 5, the rest of the dead do not live until the thousand years are finished. But this is tabernacles. And we know there's a five-day gap between atonement and tabernacles. So when the thousand years expires for the devil, it means he's released before the second resurrection. So when everybody comes up in the second resurrection, Satan, the deceiver, is released. And the whole of humanity must again choose now between the tree of life and the tree of deception. It's necessary. So we see in verse 20, verse 12, I saw saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. We are here helping these people. We are committed to Project Humanity. We are committed to saving the woman. And we are helping here with this process. We all have to cross the finish line, which is the last great day. Now, in chapter 21... John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the new creation. This is what we are being fashioned to fit into. This is the the, the new creation. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. It's taken us back to Genesis, and there was no more sea. We're back now to the where, where God originally started. You know, they say now that the estimate is that our Milky Way has 100 billion stars. Our Milky Way, our our galaxy, has 100 billion stars, and that there are 100 billion galaxies. So our galaxy has 100 billion stars, and there are 100 billion more galaxies like ours, with 100 billion stars. That's how big this is. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and made earth the focal point, and dwelt with man on earth, and then it went sideways. And now it's come back. Now we're back where God intended us to be, where God himself will be on earth, and we will have a hundred billion galaxies out there, 
probably far more. And this is Project Humanity. And all of our loved ones who have died. And we thought they were written off. And people think they're burning in hell. Not true. They're made in God's image. And they must develop his likeness. And we will be the helpers to bring them into the family. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. When I watched my wife walk down the aisle in white, coming to me, here it is now. And I heard a voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And then he quotes Isaiah. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he sat upon the throne, and he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. All of this is going away. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. Now we have crossed the finish line. This is it. All of the blood, sweat, and tears is now over. It's accomplished. I am Alpha and Omega. From Passover to last great day, it's all about Christ. This is his plan for humanity. The beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst the fountain of life, the fountain of the water of life freely. Notice verse 7. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. It doesn't say, the first fruits harvest, they will inherit everything, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my son. And well, the fall harvest, well, they can be my grandchildren. All humanity is invited to be the sons of God. We are called early to help. We're not better. We're just first. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Eve is the mother of all living. And we are here to, to rescue all living from the enslavement of the devil. Verse 9. Well, let's go to the next slide, actually. I just want to show you the bookends. Of Revelation, And this, I just want to say this, that Christ could save mankind directly. He calls us to help. He works through us. We're not better, we're just first. Let's go to the next slide. Notice this. Genesis and Revelation. In Genesis, Satan appears. In Revelation, he's removed. In Genesis, the first Adam is established as ruler. In Revelation, the second Adam is established as the right true eternal ruler night darkness and sea are created night darkness and sea are removed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is introduced the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is no longer necessary the river the, the river and the tree of life are in the garden the river and the tree of life are in the garden satan utters the first lie all liars are removed genesis begins with a wedding revelation ends with the wedding this is the whole counsel of God. This is what we're involved in. It's mega. It's a mega mystery. This is big. 
We are not better, we're first. We've got to have this all of humanity perspective. We can't hate humanity. We're here to rescue humanity. Forgive them, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. Let's conclude. In chapter 22. In verse 12, he says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give unto every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they, verse 14, blessed are they that do his commandments. We can fool around and we can play the hypocrite, or we can do his commandments. It's up to us. Blessed are they who do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, which Adam was blocked from, and may enter in through the gates into the city. And again, search the scriptures, brethren, to see if these things are so. I can't go through all the scriptures. But I want to ask us, please, can we move beyond a Pentecost focus? Can we have a last great day focus? Can we say that this is not about us? We're recruited early. We're the arms and legs. We're the body of Christ to help save the woman. This is the perspective we should have. Let's learn to love one another. Let's be committed to one another. Let's esteem others better than ourselves. Let's ensure, instead of me here worrying, am I going to make it? I want to make sure all of us make it. So that we can save humanity. Let's have this sense of purpose and mission. The new creation is coming. And it's longing for its kings and its priests who will administer the word of God. And that's why we were here this week. And this is what we must take with us. An alpha and omega vision for all humanity. We conclude in Revelation 22 and verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.